much, Grace and Xander. That is one of my favorite songs of all time. Well done with that choice. I love it. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, this morning as I speak, may the words that I speak not be mine, but may they be yours, God. You know that this is a tough topic for me. But I also know that this is something that you put on my heart to say, and so, God, I, I, I ask that we hear the things that we're supposed to hear, we hear the messages that you, are, that you mean for us to hear. May the curtains be pulled back, may we be overwhelmed by the amazing things that you are doing for us. Lord, thank you so much for the ten days of prayer that just finished up. God, I, I felt them, they're powerful. And may, may they continue on in our prayer lives. May our, our prayer lives be a powerful and driving force in our lives. Amen. And I believe this is in the suburb of London, but as somebody that's not from Great Britain, I suppose everything is a suburb of London, right? He decided he wanted to go out, and he, was, he wanted to know more about birds, and so he goes out, and he, he gets this brilliant idea one day. He's like, I want to see if an owl will return my owl call. And so he goes out and does whatever owl call he does. Hooty hoo hoo. You know, like hooty hoo hoo. And he listens for a little bit. Oh, nothing. Oh, so much disappointment. Oh, let's try it again. Let's try it again. Hooty hoo hoo. Hoo hoo. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, he hears back. Hooty hoo hoo. Hooty hoo hoo. And he's so excited, and he's like, I have done it. I wonder how often I can keep this up. Maybe there's an owl family that lives in my area. And so he goes out every single night, and he hears, oh man, he is like, he is connecting with nature in such a powerful way. And he just knows that like somewhere out there, there is an owl that, that, is, that they, they're, they're, their spirits have connected in a wonderful way. And one day his wife is out talking to another, another wife, and she says, yeah, my, my husband Neil's been doing this amazing thing. He's been going out, and he's figured out how he, he, he's calling to this owl family. Did you know there's an owl family that lives in our neighborhood? And the uh, neighbor lady, oh, really? And she says, yeah, he calls to it every night. It's amazing. And this neighborhood lady says, you would not believe it. My husband's doing the exact same thing. <laughs> we've been doing a series on prayer, and many, I think that for a lot of us, this story about owls parallels some of the things that we tend to struggle with with prayer. Sometimes it may just feel like a desperate call to the unknown. We're going to stand out there and hoo 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 who knows if anything's going to come out, right? I mean, does it really matter at all? Are we just calling to the wind? What if I do hear something back? What if it turns out to be somebody else? What if I'm made out to look like a fool calling to the air? Mistake, what if, what if I mistake God's voice with something else? What if, what if I think that just some random coincidence is God's voice? What if I look like a fool in following something that I call God but really isn't? I think we've all had these thoughts every once in a while. I can just see it now. 
foolish man thinks neighbor calling owl is God. Oh, how embarrassing that would be. Well, I have an owl calling story of my own that I'm going to share as well. I was out one time, I was back from college, and I got locked out of my parents' house, no fault of their own. And uh, <laughs> so I was sitting on the back lawn just looking up at the stars. And at the time, I was just really deep into to nature stuff and doing all that kind of thing. And I was learning owl calls. And I was looking up, and it was a suburban neighborhood, so I really wasn't expecting to see anything all that interesting, just enjoying the stars as they were. And I see this big, dark shadow fly over me. And I go, oh, I wonder if that's an owl. And so I just out of randomly, I, I make my, I do an owl call just to see, like, will this work? And I saw the shadow turn around and come back and dip. And he came closer. Wow, what an exhilarating experience. So I do it again. I do my owl call. And he comes around and he dips lower. He did that twice. And just, just talking about it right now, it like quickens my heart because there's, there's it's an amazing thing to be able to connect with nature in that way. And I just felt like it was almost an, a spiritual experience for me. It was really a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I feel like in some ways I'm blessed enough for my prayer journey to mirror that experience more than the experience of Neil. I was lucky enough, blessed enough, lucky isn't the right word, I was blessed enough to have a young, young experience where I, I wasn't just hearing something that may be God. I feel very strongly that I have seen God as, from a very young age in a very tangible way through prayer. And I've gone through my dark times, my hard times, and I can't say that I've always been perfect in any way, shape, or form, but there's no point in my life that I feel like I could ever really deny the reality of God because I saw him in such a powerful way at one point in my life, and I cannot deny that that experience was real. I was never able to deny the power of God, and I was never able to question really whether he still works or whether or not he cares for me. I've always known that, and that's always been an anchor for me. And even though sometimes that chain has been let out a little bit, it's always been anchor for me. Prayer. So integral to my early experiences with God, but it sometimes feels so far away. It's been good to spend time in preparing for this sermon to kind of go back to that place in my mind to be thinking a little bit about that and, and kind of reliving that experience of, of what that was like. And in that journey, I remember the idea of spiritual warfare, or as Adventists call it, the great controversy, so integral to me and what it was. It wasn't a concept, it was reality. I remember the first concept of battle, that, um, of heavenly forces, that I can remember really taking hold for me. I was about 12, I believe, um, and I started reading a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Not an Adventist book by any means, it's a novel. But it, it, it tackles this idea. It has several storylines, and it has a storyline about uh, this pastor that's in a small church, 
And he sits down, and he's desperate, and he doesn't know what to do, and so he decides, the only thing that I can do is pray. And then it dives kind of under, under the surface, and it talks about, it has a storyline that follows the angels that are assigned to looking over this pastor. And then it follows the storyline of the, the demons, the dark forces that are assigned to foil his plans. And you see as he's praying, this beautiful imagery of, of him praying and his prayers resulting in powerful battles over the people he's praying over. And I remember I went to my, my pastor at the time, and I was excited. I was like, can you believe this? What an awesome concept. There's these demons and these angels, and they're fighting, and, and the, the man prays, and it, it does things. It does things. Prayer does things in, in the spiritual realm, and, and it affects the battle. And I was just so excited. And the, my senior pastor at the time just kind of looked at me like, what? Why are you saying this? And he's like, how is this a new concept for you, Brandon? This is what we believe, man, <laughs> you know? And eventually, as time went on, it wasn't very long before I, I ended up becoming very close to this, this particular senior pastor. And we engaged very deeply in, in some very powerful prayer ministries. Me and two other thing, uh, teens at the time, I was only about 13, we would end up going to churches and conferences with this man, and we would pray. And I've seen amazing things from a young teen, barely a teen already. I saw some amazing things. I saw prayers answered. I saw spiritual warfare happening. And, and it be, just became part of what I saw. It was normal. It wasn't weird by any means. It was just the way I saw things. It wasn't a novelty for me. It was simply a reality. Later on in life, after college, I, I'm approached by a friend of mine, not a Christian by any means, has never been a Christian, hates all things Christianity, really. I'm surprised he's friends with me. Very good friends. And he calls me up one day and says, Brandon, I don't know how to say this. I'm not a Christian, but I'm being tormented by a demon. I can tell you more of that story later. That's really not an integral part of what I'm talking about today. But what I'm trying to get the point across is that the idea of spiritual warfare, it's not just us. There's other people out there. And for those of you that have been on mission trips, for those of you who have seen other countries, the, the devil tends to be a little bit less covert there. I know people, not just him. I know people that have been possessed. I know this is... This is reality, and yet this is something that I don't like talking about. It makes me uncomfortable. Because as time went on, as I began to grow up, I started to notice that conversations around spiritual warfare, sermons, books, all these things, they just, the conversations didn't seem right to me. They seemed like when you talk about spiritual warfare, they're just, they're just scare tactics. I, I heard the story from a pastor, Emily Ellis. She came out to speak for us for our week of prayer. And then when we were out at week of worship this last week, we heard her preach as well. Strangely enough, she's only told this story twice, and both of those times I heard it. <laughs> but she talks about, as a child, hearing stories about demons and just being terrified and, and, and running to the back of the church and finding a dark corner to cry to herself because she was so scared. 
And that, st- that story just kind of kept on revolving in the back of my mind as I was preparing the sermon going, Am I, is it a mistake to talk about this? I even called her. I thought, Emily, like, do, I don't, I don't want to scar another sh- child. I think also a lot of times when we talk about spiritual warfare, it's sensational. It glorifies dark things. It's like, it's like those, those testimonies where somebody will spend an hour and a half talking about how bad they were, and at the end they'll be like, and then I found Jesus, it's all good, and we walk away, right? And all we just spent is the last hour hearing about darkness, and we never really talked about the goodness of God. And so, similarly, so many people that talk about spiritual warfare, they just sink down into this depth of like, let's just talk about darkness. And I don't like that. I really don't, because... I'm not here because I'm scared of the devil. I'm here because I love Jesus. And I hope that you're here for that same reason. So I resign the topic to those that I would consider unnecessarily extreme in their focus. And maybe that's you too. Maybe this makes you feel uncomfortable for those same reasons. In 10 years of ministry, never have I touched the idea of spiritual warfare just because for that very reason— it's uncomfortable for me. I don't like it. I don't like the things that we are doing. And yet here we are, because I feel that God this week has said, you need to do this. You need to talk about this. So here we go. I want to be very, very clear just from the get-go of what I want you to get from this sermon. I've got three major points. The first one is, there is good news. We have nothing to fear, and for every reason, we have every reason to be bold. And say that again. We have good news. We have nothing to fear and every reason to be bold. Second, we are caught in the middle of a battle between forces that are far bigger than us. And third, and this is what, where we tie into prayer, prayer is so much more important than we could ever begin to understand. Prayer is so much more important than we could ever even begin to understand. I'm going to preload this sermon with a set of two Bible stories set just a few years apart. The first story is from 2 Kings 6. If you'd like to follow along, you're welcome to. That's 2 Kings 6. And we find ourselves interacting with this guy. He's a prophet of God called Elisha. Many of you have heard his name before. And he's finding himself in a sticky situation. He is here, and he finds out that there is an enemy king, there is an enemy force that wants him dead. And the reason why is a little bit outside of the scope of what we're talking about, but this enemy king wants him dead. And one morning he wakes up, and his sermon, uh, servant, his servant looks out the window and sees the city surrounded and he panics. There are horses and chariots surrounding the city. This is like mine as well. This was the best modern warfare tech there was available at the time. Mine as well look out and see tanks and snipers. There is simply no escape. So 6, 16 and 17, if you're following along, 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17, Elisha says, don't be afraid. I love, I I know that you can't get intonation from words on a page. And I really wish the Bible was more descriptive with that. I wish that it said, do not be afraid, he said bravely. 
It doesn't say that. I wish it did, though. But don't be afraid. It almost has this feeling to me of like a nonchalance. Don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than are with them. Now, we have to read between the lines a little bit because it doesn't give a descriptor about what his servant said. But we can get it, we can, we can infer that a little bit from what comes next. I can imagine the servant looking to Elisha and be like, what? There's two of us. Look out there, man. There's hundreds of them. You're doing your math wrong, buddy. There are not more of us than there are of them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the servant, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. What would it be like if we saw the spiritual forces that are fighting in our corners. Our enemies may not seem as big as they seem. Our problems may not seem as big as they are. When you feel alone, when you feel cornered, I encourage you to say, my enemies are bigger, stronger. There's more of them. than My, my allies are more than my enemies. The second story is found in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 20. It takes place just a few years later. As far as I can tell, I did my research. I tend to get locked up on these little details that don't matter. Um, I can tell that it only took place maybe four to ten years later. And at this time, the, the, the nation of Israel split into two. We call it the divided kingdom. And you have Israel and you have Judah. And at this time... While the nation of Israel descends into godlessness, the nation of Israel turns to God under the leadership of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And the Bible speaks very, very fondly of Jehoshaphat. He sa says he tore down the idols, he tore down the temples to other gods. He sent teachers out to the villages to teach the word of God. And it also says within the same breath that his military forces grew and neighboring countries were terrified and sent gifts to him, hoping that he would not attack them. And so he's this big, powerful character. I really want that to come through to you. Like, there are good things happen. And because of these good things, his forces grew, his wealth grew. They were the center of all. It was a good, good thing. But as things go, there's always somebody more powerful and somebody more motivated to prove themselves. You are never the biggest fish in the sea. A, warn, a word of warning to not get arrogant, which is super fun in board games. I used to play the game of Risk a lot, and my wife really, like, I, I, I think I'm relatively good at it. My wife, thinking that she's doing me a favor whenever we play with somebody new, would always come back and be like, my husband is amazing, he always wins, which of course causes them to do what? attack you all the time. And uh, not helpful. 
Basic point being, though, when you're seen as the biggest, you've got the biggest target. And that was definitely the position that they were in. And so they had this big target on them. Now, this is one I would definitely recommend that you follow along in because we're going to be reading it word for word, quite a bit of it. Second Chronicles 20. Second Chronicles 20. And we're going to start at verse 1. And I'm going to just start reading word for word. Sometimes I, I paraphrase and come out just because. But this one is, the wording is just so, um, just wonderful. It's great. All right, here we go. Second Chronicles 21. And after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, together with some of the Ammonites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. So you caught that, right? Like we're starting our story with several groups from overseas coming in to attack. And people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and Edom has come to fight against you. And they are already in Hazan Tamar. And Jehoshaphat's reaction was that he was afraid. There's a lot that you could take away from that reaction. You could take away the idea that he wasn't set on his armies. Maybe he didn't a lot, or he didn't know what was coming. But I want you to keep in mind, he had every reason to be arrogant about his military position, and he wasn't. He was afraid. And his and his reaction to that was that he resolved to seek the Lord. And then he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah who gathered to seek the Lord, and they came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. And he said, so this is a quote, Yahweh, God of our ancestors, you are not the God... Are you not, I always miss that, changes it. Are you not the God who is in heaven? I want you to look at the way that he's talking to God. This is very important. It seems very strange for us as Westerners to talk to God in this way. But this is how he does it. And this is actually seen in those times as being a very uh, faithful way to do it, to approach God. Are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms and nations? Power and might are in your hands, and no one can stand against you, God. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants before this land, before your people of Israel, and gave it to forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lied in the land and have built your sanctuary in it, and your name has— I'm sorry, built you a sanctuary in it, for your name has— and have said, if disaster comes upon us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because, for you, to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. So what he's doing at this time was a very, very common thing done by righteous people, where it's not like God, and this, we tend to do with God, you know, if, if, it's, if it's within your will, please do this. You know, it's kind of, no. The way that they said is, God, this is what you have promised us. Keep your promises. We are calling you to keep your promises. Step up, because you said you would protect us, and we are claiming that promise. Protect us. 
boldness. The boldness in it is amazing and beautiful. I love it. Second Chronicles 20.10. Now here the, are the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not, he continues, you did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. So he's basically saying, these people we spared. When we came out of Egypt, we could have destroyed them, and we didn't, and yet they turned their backs on us. They're evil people. Look how they, on verse 11, look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. He's, he's, he's like he's evoking a sense of, of protection, of, of, um, of, of anger, right? He's like, aren't you angry? They're taking away what you gave us. Our God, won't you judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. Second Chronicles 20, 13. And this is where it gets exciting. He calls God to justice. He calls God to keep his promises. And then, my favorite line in the world, and then God responds. 2013. And all of Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants and their wives and their children. I can imagine a vast group of people, mothers that are weeping because... They're worried that they're going to get destroyed right along with their children. Hopeless situation. And in the middle of the congregation, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, and he said, Listen careful, carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Listen carefully. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number, for the battle is not yours. It is God's. The battle is not yours. It is God's. Facing down a massive, massive group, they have the best army that they could ever ask for, and they're scared, and God says, this is not your battle to fight, it's mine. Tomorrow, go down against them, and you will see them coming up the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness, Jeruel. You do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and I want you to see, look, at the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out to face them, for Yahweh is with you. So just to summarize what happens next, the next day they go out and they look for this great army because they're going out and, and they don't know exactly what's going to happen. I suppose they, they're hoping maybe they're going to stand on this hill and see a giant ball of fire or something consuming but instead they go out 
I don't know. I'm sure that they were fearful. I'm sure that some were a little bit hopeful, but I can only imagine the tension in their, in their bodies as they go out and they say, okay, God, the battle's yours. The battle's yours. Like, they're trying to remind themselves of that. I don't know if you've ever done that in your life, but sometimes we just need those mantras. Like, God, the battle's yours. The battle's yours. And we have to repeat it over and over and over again to keep on reminding ourselves in every second, the battle's God's. So they go out and they look out and they approach the battlefield. And as they look, there is not a single person, not alive at least, it's simply a field of corpses. Everybody had been killed before they even showed up. The battle belongs to God. What would happen if we began to see the battle as God's, not ours? At best, we, we believe that God can come in to help us on occasion, but maybe not. It's still our battle to fight, right? But what would we see? What would, what, how would it change the way we thought if we thought, this is not my fight. That boss that makes your life miserable or a co-worker, that's God's battle. The addiction that you don't ever feel like you're going to be able to shake, that's God's battle, not yours. Your depression, anxiety, loneliness, marriage issues, money issues, health issues, those are all God's battles, not yours. When you lay out your issues before God, your enemies, in whatever form they take, are God's enemies to fight. And your only job is to humble yourself before God himself. This is the groundwork for the concept of spiritual warfare. The armies of God are more than any of darkness. They are infinitely more powerful. And though we are involved in a horrible battle, it is not ours to fight. One of the things that really got me thinking about this concept and what, what started convicting me that I needed to talk about it was a story that one of my good friends, Ron Halverson Jr., preached from his pulpit a couple weeks ago. If you guys know who Ron Halverson Jr. is, he's a big man, and he's got a, a big, deep voice. I'm, I'm always really jealous of that because he could say uh, the, the, the menu from McDonald's and it would sound profound. It's not fair. Anyways, he's a powerful, powerful man spiritually as well. He's been sick. I talked to him around Thanksgiving time, and he told me that he was sick, that he was battling something, and I didn't realize the extent of it until I heard this sermon. So he's been fighting double pneumonia. He's got fluid, had a huge amount of fluid in his right lung. And so as he preaches, I just want you to imagine this for a second, a big man, and, and he's typically such a powerful presence. But in this video, he, he's clearly weak. He's sitting on a stool, and he's tired, and he's leaning against his pulpit. His speech is slow. He takes long breaks, labored breathing. He says he's been recovering from six weeks of pain with every breath. And yet he's there to tell his story. And you can see it in his mannerisms that there is something deeply personal about this. So he begins by talking about his sickness. Lots of suffering. He ended up needing, get, needing to put a chest tube in his right side, and they drained lots of infected fluid. And then he begins to tell of a vision that he had as a young man. And it goes like this. There was a big, 
It was dark, and there was this big, run-down, empty house surrounded by a swamp. This house was so dilapidated that in some places a swamp would come in to his house. And he says he, he looked and he saw that there was a serpent lived in this swamp that would come out and he would, he would attack young people. And then he would withdraw. And, and, and as he approached this house, he saw the serpent come out and grab this young man. And rather than being sad, rather than being scared, he was angry. How dared this serpent do this to this young man? And he says he saw a sword in front of him. And he reached for it, and he grabbed it, and he ran at the serpent, and he attacked the serpent. And the snake withdrew. And so he went inside, and he was in, in a room alone, and suddenly the serpent came out of nowhere and attacked him. And he came back behind him and bit his right side. He says he's never understood why the snake bit his right side, why he didn't go for the heart or his neck or his head, but he did. He bit his right side and he said he could feel the fangs sink in and the venom begin to flow. And just about he was, as he was about to pass out, Jesus appeared with a scepter and struck the snake. And Jesus turned to him and said, Ron, the serpent is vanquished, but he is still dangerous. Pick up your sword. It's time for battle. And so he did, and he chased the serpent into another room and began to attack. But this room was different because this room had people in it. And when he began to attack this snake, everyone around him saw, and they also picked up their swords and attacked. He said he never fully understood the meaning of the dream. Decades went by, he didn't understand it until now. On October of this year, he found himself in a church office, in his church office, praying with a young man. And when he began to pray, he, quote-unquote, he said, all hell broke loose. Clearly a demon, loss of body control, multiple voices. And this demon addressed him and said, Man of God, look, a preacher that hates us and what we do, finally. And he said, it made me angry. I should have been scared, but it made me angry to see a young man abused like this. And he replied back, this is the house of God. You have no right to be here. In Jesus' name, get out. And immediately the young man relaxed and peace and sanity was restored to him. Just like his dream, so many decades earlier, young man attacked. Just like his dream, two months later, his chest tube was put in the exact spot that he was attacked by his serpent in his dream. But that's not the end of the dream, is it? The end of the dream is when the people around him picked up their swords and joined the fight. How easy it would be just to pass this off as a medical thing, to not see what's happening in the background, just to say that this sickness is connected to health. But guess what? This sickness, his time in the hospitals, hospital was connected to the whole health of the church. There's an incredible blessing in seeing more to this story, because when we see more to this story, we can see Jesus working. We could see just a man in the hospital, but instead we can see a man that is fighting for God 
and we can be inspired to also pick up our swords and fight. When we can see Jesus working, when we can see the hand with the scepter strike the servant, and we can hear the voice of Jesus say, join the battle, people. I have already won. We can see that the battle belongs to him. It serves as a call to action to pick up your swords, to pray that the enemy is at hand and you will see God triumph. And now it's our time. It's our time to pick up our swords. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritually dark forces. But don't be scared or overwhelmed. The hills are still alive with chariots of fire. The battle is still God's to fight. May we pick up our swords and fight on our knees because that is our only real weapon in this battle is prayer. Prayer is still necessary because free will exists. If we can push God away, then we can also invite him in. I think sometimes we wonder that. Sometimes we wonder why is prayer necessary if God can already be here. Well, God can already be here, but we need to ask him there. We need to ask him to be a part of this battle for us. When we pray, heaven opens up and the call to attack begins. It doesn't require a great man or woman. It doesn't require perfection or a certain level of holiness. Prayer can be wielded by anyone who is simply open to God. Prayer can be wielded by anyone who is willing to be open to God. So many people say, I'm not worthy enough to engage in this. No, this is not about your worthiness. This is about God's goodness. So let the heavens ring out with the prayers of his people. May it one day be said, the battle turned when the people at Medford SDA Church said, we are no longer satisfied with the rules and moral living. Today, we will go to battle on our knees until we hear the voice of Jesus say, it's time to stand up and come home. Lord, may we approach prayer in a powerful way. May we see that, God, we are facing forces that are too big for us, but we have no need to worry because you are there. God, may we grasp onto prayer. May we grasp onto you, knowing that it is our only hope, and knowing that it is the only light to this world. Amen.